that's the one we want. I might pray for us before uh, before I begin. Uh, we might pray for Bob as well, because he would really have liked to be here to deliver his message this morning, but uh, he, he was not in great shape on Thursday. So should we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand it and to appropriate it in our lives. So we say, Holy Spirit, come as we listen and meditate on on these words from Hebrews. Lord, we also pray for Bob this morning. We thank you for the preparation that he's done in preparing this message for us. We ask that you would heal and restore his body um, so that he can get back to a full function as soon as possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, so if you have any complaints about the sermon, uh, just uh, let Bob know and or let me know and I'll pass them on. <laughs> well, as we all know, life is full, chock full of choices. Choices range from what we choose for breakfast in the morning, to how we choose to fill the day, to what TV programs we may choose to watch at night. In a less mundane sense, every life situation is a choice. We choose how to react to situations. We choose how to relate to people. We choose to exercise regularly or not. It's our choice how we live our life day by day. Our nation is faced with a choice, a very important choice coming up later this year, with the yes vote and the no vote in the referendum. Now is not the time to talk about this choice we're all called called upon to make, but it affects our nation. This morning in our Hebrews 12 passage, we consider another life choice, and one far more significant than any other choice in life that we are called to make. It is the choice represented by two mountains, Mount Sinai on the one hand, or Mount Zion. Last week, we considered King David's repentance and personal renewal as expressed in the words of Psalm 51, where David came to terms with his sinfulness before God, claiming God's forgiveness. We commence today with the scene portrayed in the Old Testament reading of Second Chronicles chapter 6, King Solomon's dedication of the temple. Here we learn about God's choices. For God chose Jerusalem as the focus of his earthly presence. He chose David to be the leader of his people, but not, as we heard from the reading, but not the builder of the temple. He chose Solomon, David's son, to build the house for his name and where the Ark of the Covenant would finally reside. The significance of these divine choices then, and they were all in accordance with God's purposes for his people, God was faithful to his promises of old. While in one sense almighty God's presence could not be contained in an earthly temple, 
For as Solomon goes on to declare in verse 18 of this same chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, even heaven and earth, sorry, even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God, how much less this house that I, Solomon, have built. In another sense, the temple was a place in which God could be encountered through prayer, through worship, through sacrifices. In the same way today, church is not so much the building, but the place of the gathering of God's people for the purposes of praying, singing, remembering God's mighty acts, offering praise and thanksgiving together with like-minded people. I think I've got a bit of what Bob had, so hopefully my voice holds out. We don't have to come to church, this gathering of God's people, but if we are followers of God's Son, we will want to gather regularly with God's people to be encouraged in our faith and motivated to go forth and serve. And so the message of Solomon to Israel of old, as recorded in our Old Testament reading today, was one which highlighted the faithfulness of God and exhorted the people in turn to be faithful to their God. The temple then, in Solomon's day, was the place of ark and altar where God's grace reached down and faith responded. But having said this, Old Testament worship in the temple did not enable people to enjoy a warm and close relationship with God. Whereas Christian believers now have a more intimate access to God because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Following this thread, then, we come to our Hebrews 12 reading, which needs some unpacking. Here we have the imagery of two mountains. We have Mount Sinai, representing the worship offered under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament era under Moses. And we have Mount Zion, representing the worship offered by all who have embraced by faith the New Covenant in the New Testament era under Jesus. The context of these two styles of worship couldn't be more different. On one hand, there is the terror and fear that accompanied the giving of the law and the making of the old covenant of Sinai. And then there is the grace and kindness of God seen in Jesus with the beginning of the new covenant through his sprinkled or shed blood on the cross. So considering these two styles in turn, first of all, Mount Sinai worship. That is worship which is cold and clinical in its physical form. Now, although the writer to the Hebrews in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 12 does not mention Sinai by name, he clearly paints a picture from the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy of Sinai as a fearful place where the Ten Commandments were given. There are seven images or characteristics in this passage that drive home 
the Sinai events terror. The first one is the mountain cannot be touched. The second one, a blazing fire. The third, darkness. Fourth, gloom. The fifth one, the storm. The sixth one, a trumpet blast. And the seventh one, a commanding voice. God was very much part of this scene, but the entire picture is one of inaccessibility and distance. God was present and perceivable, tangible and terrifying. At Sinai, even Moses did not have direct access to God. He, along with everyone else, encountered a veiled and hidden God. In Martin Luther's graphic terms, Moses saw only the buttocks of God. Moses, trembling with fear, was a response to the intensity of God's red-hot wrath in the face of Israel's sin. So then, the impression here from Hebrews 6 of Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant mountain, this was a place of darkness and dread. The terms used here are designed to evoke an image of the awesome majesty of God who made his presence known at Sinai. So then secondly, in the imagery of the two mountains, there is Mount Zion worship, or that is worship which is lively and joyful in its spiritual dimension. Here in verses 22 to 24, the writers of the Hebrews describes a style of worship which is like a preview of heaven. What are the features of this new covenant worship which are direct in direct contrast to the Mount Sinai encounter with God? Well, again, there are seven features. The first one is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Two thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Third, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Fourth, God, the judge of all people. Fifth, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Sixth, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And seven, the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. This picture of the gathered assembly at Mount Zion portrays exaltation and warmth and openness and acceptance and relationship as opposed to the dismal portrait of the Sinai assembly. At Sinai there was gloom and doom giving the impression, stay away, do not draw near, you are not worthy to be close to God. At Zion, there was a joy and freedom giving the impression, come close, draw near. Christ, by his blood and forgiveness, has brought you, has made you worthy to enter God's presence. We began this morning focusing on choices. If we are Christians, then we have chosen Mount Zion 
over Mount Sinai, according to the analogy of the two mountains. In making this choice, we must acknowledge that it is only the shed blood of Christ on Calvary that could make this choice. For Christ's blood speaks to us now from heaven, pointing to mercy and forgiveness for penitent sinners like us. As verse 24 refers to, through faith we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood was sprinkled or shed to make us clean, to offer forgiveness, to give us access to God. This powerful blood of Jesus, unlike the shed blood of Abel in Genesis chapter 4, which cried out for vengeance, brings forgiveness. Jesus' blood brings cleansing from sin. And because of this forgiveness... We are now citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Not by effort, but by grace. This means that now our worship should reflect the worship of Zion, not Sinai. We are not yet in heaven because we still must face all kinds of sufferings and temptations associated with this world, but... Our worship, our ministries, our evangelism and our outreach must reflect heavenly values. In this regard, a colleague recently drew my attention to a book written by a Quaker pastor called If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. Ouch, the ouch is mine, not Bob's. In this book, the author lists those qualities a church should have if it refocused on the priorities of Jesus. I list them now because they fit the Mount Zion type on which we have been considering in Hebrews 6. Make of them what you will, but ask yourselves, are they relevant to St. Matt's? New Testament churches, says that Quaker pastor, regard Jesus as a model for living rather than an object of worship. They focus on people's potential as more important than reminding them of their brokenness. They value the work of reconciliation over making judgments. New Testament churches, he says, encourage loving behaviour rather than right belief. They regard inviting questions as more valuable than supplying answers. They foster the personal search as more important than group uniformity. They see the meeting of actual needs as more important than maintaining the institution. They see identifying with peacemaking rather than power. And they would focus on life in this world as more important than the afterlife. Perhaps this 
refers to the fact that we Christians must not be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. Now, I know each of these priorities are discussable, and that may be an exercise for another time, but it begs the question, would a visitor coming to our church now get the impression that we are a little outpost of heaven because of our Christ-like qualities? And this is worth pondering for a moment. Do our gatherings reflect Mount Zion or Mount Sinai characteristics? So, to what are we calling and inviting people when we ask them to come to St. Matt's? Are our gatherings places of dread, where God is remote and distant and unapproachable? Or... Are we calling people to join us in the experience of unparalleled joy? Well, as common garden variety Anglicans, we are not meant to be unduly raucous or rowdy. So I am not implying that we need not so I am not implying that we need to become happy clappies, but we are, as Christians of all people on earth, we are the ones who have reason to celebrate and sing with joy and exultation. I'm not saying that there isn't a time for quiet reflection. I'm not saying that we shouldn't tremble in awe of God's majesty and holiness. I'm not saying that we should never talk about God's wrath or the reality of judgment. What I'm saying instead is that even when we spend time reflecting on such truths and feeling the weight of God's holiness, we should also rejoice in gratitude and glad celebration that his holiness does not keep us at arm's length and that his wrath has been poured out upon and absorbed by Jesus. Yes, We must talk about the reality of sin, but never in such a way that we fail to speak of forgiveness. Yes, we must sing about God's infinite righteousness, but never without reminding ourselves that he has drawn us to himself in saving grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. When God spoke from Sinai, The people trembled in fear and begged him to be silent. But when God speaks to us through his word today, we hear grace and redemption and freedom. And we are to long to hear more. God's word need not frighten us as it did in the time of Moses simply because our sin has been forgiven. God's wrath has been satisfied. The breach between heaven and earth has been healed. So in conclusion then I ask again, do our gatherings hint of the doom and gloom of Sinai? Or because we are renewed and redeemed people by the saving death of Christ, do our gatherings reverberate with the light 
and love and forgiveness of Zion. That choice is ours. Amen.